the meme. Chase that dream, not the meme. Chase that dream, not the meme. Welcome to Dreams Not Memes Podcast. Hello everyone, this is another episode of Dreams Not Memes. Today I'm here with my friend Hash from Morgantown, West Virginia. Hash is a producer and engineer who has worked with a lot of musicians and various clients. Today we're going to talk to him about his journey. How's it going? It is going well, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So could you tell me what came first? Was it engineering production or music? Well, you know, um, music music is definitely always going to come first. Um, because I, I kind of didn't really jump into it with both feet as in as soon as I started loving music, I also wanted to start producing or, you know, I just kind of started messing around with the computer and later I fell in love with music. It was more so... I was always in love with sounds. I just was really fascinated by what I would hear in tracks, but not even just that, just sounds in general. Like I'm, I'm very, I'm a very open person as far as sound goes. It's a very relaxing thing for me. And the music I grew up with was a lot of, you know, like Bhangra tracks, like my parents are from Pakistan. So, um, they're they were always listening to a whole bunch of really upbeat cultural music from there and i loved it i loved the drums and uh later when i kind of discovered hip-hop i kind of recognized that there was a lot of the same nice cadences and stuff and honestly at first it was just about finding what songs i liked and just sharing them playing them out for people hey bro you should listen to this this sounds cool so and so dropped a new album And then it kind of evolved and rolled into a giant ball of me starting to DJ. And like, you know, me, I started DJing at around 14 or 15. And during that time, like Skrillex was real cool. EDM was like on the rise. And that's mainly what I was DJing. And I was like, hmm, I can, I can try making something like that. So I did. I just um, started messing around in GarageBand. So that's when I had my first producing experience was around 15 or 16, but I was DJing before then. But uh, also during that time, like uh, one of my uh, health teachers, actually, uh, he owned a DJing company. So he heard my mixes, some of them, and he's like, yo, come work for me. And that made my interest in music grow even more. It expanded my genre horizons. I didn't hear a lot of the songs that, you know, he was having us play during weddings because, you know, I just I was raised more so on hip hop and then got into EDM kind of through the Internet. But um he really put me on to like a lot of the jazzier stuff. And um, it DJing was really nice for me. It was a good experience, especially with weddings, because I could see what type of things and different songs made people react, made people go like, oh, yes, like made them want to move their feet, go to the dance floor. So I started to kind of apply that knowledge to the production side of things. But again, dude, I'm a musician, still wasn't satisfied. I was like, I really need to make it sound good. You know, a lot of people were telling me that I was making like, okay, beats, they were cool. And they're like, yeah, it just sounds not professional. And I was like, that's totally fair. Um, uh, Honestly, I wouldn't still be into music if people around me weren't like, hey, bro, that doesn't sound all right. It sounds all right, but it doesn't sound good. And, and, you know, so then I was like, all right, I need to take all right to good. So let's learn some engineering. And I was like, I need to take good to great, great to excellent. So that has been kind of my whole steez in life for the past 10 years, just trying to, you know, really perfect what I'm doing behind the computer. Um, and yeah, I mean, really the music stays today. Like I, I don't feel like the love of music ever fades, even though I work with it all the time. Um, 
uh, maybe I'll get like a little sick with like some genres or a specific type of sound, but um, for the most part, you know, it's always been the music. That's always what's been there. And um, just the pursuit to make better music is what drives um, it's what drives me to become a better producer, become a better engineer, have a more professional space for my clients, you know, um, really focus, hone down on getting that perfect sound. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that <laughs> answers your question. No, no, it totally does. And I like that you mentioned your health teacher, like being a part of like nurturing and, and growing. Oh, he was a humongous part. Not only did he help me discover new music, he was very open with me to like, you know, I kind of just told him, I'm like, Hey man, like, you know, um, some friends of mine want to have a little get together. Um, they wanted me to DJ. It's just like an outdoor barbecue. Is it cool if I use some equipment? He's like, yeah, man, use whatever you want. I'm like, yeah, I'll throw you a hundred bucks. He's like, don't worry about it. You know, he was, he was really instrumental about actually pushing me to, you know, put myself out there, have people pay me for the skills that I have. And if I, if I didn't encounter that, with the uh, DJing and stuff, I don't think I would have been as ready for the studio business because when you start getting into the studio um, end of things, you know, stuff changes. Um, it's not as on your feet, you know, suddenly you can take time with things. You can take time with the mix of production and that ends up, you know, <laughs> being two hours to four days to five months, you know? So there was also that challenge, you know, um, and working with him being a professional DJ, I was able to, you know, categorize my processes, you know, with the DJing, you know, first you locate the venue, you talk to the people, you show up on time, unload the van, find the room, yada, yada, yada. So I basically just kind of applied that, except put it in terms of studio, like, you know, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come. I was like, get a mic, you know, get an interface, get some speakers. Uh, I already had beat making knowledge. Um, I want to say about five years ago, I started working with a vocalist heavily, like as a real time thing. That's when I got my first mic. Um, so that, that really changed a lot of things for me because I realized how horrible I was at engineering at that point when I got my own mic, cause I was engineering people who were like, who just sent me their stems and they were like, not that serious. And the mixes were okay. You know, passable, good enough for SoundCloud. And that's basically what I was doing up to that point. But getting that mic and having the discipline that my health teacher gave me were really, really huge milestones with um, why I was able to actually run a studio. Because a lot of people think it's, you know, buy the spot, buy the gear, get in there, book some sessions, done. And it's really not that simple because there's so many years of hard work before that guy gets the studio. It's like the iceberg effect, you know, like you don't know what's underwater. You can only see what's on the surface. So I was always for years seeing what's on the surface. Oh, all I have to do is this. All I have to do is that. And, you know, just talking with uh, uh, Ken, that's my boss, my health teacher. Um, you know, he was, he would always just, we would just break down songs and analyze them. Like, when we play this song, why does it really hit? And we would just be like, oh man, the baseline, that's fire. Oh yeah, it's the drums that make this one. It's definitely the melody that makes this one. And it was nice. It was really nice to just be around another music guy 
because he plays in bands and stuff like that. He's a drummer. So it was nice to be around him. Another music guy just shooting ideas back and forth, even though we've never made anything in the studio, just having those conversations about other people's music, music in general, you know, the image of what, what is coming out, what is pop, because obviously us being DJs, we need to be on top of our skills. You know, some stuff we should ignore, some stuff we should definitely marry into our little medley of songs, you know? So that kind of process led me to really, you know, concentrate on specific parts of the beat. What makes this beat good? Why does this artist like my beat? Why does this artist dislike my beat? What am I doing with the mix that can be better? What am I doing with the, you know, uh, percussion, yada, yada, yada. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a whole lot, but it's fun. I had a really fun time. Honestly, like it doesn't feel like 10 years went by. Because the thing is, when you're learning every second, every step of the way, there's people around you who are like, this is a possible thing. I mean, nobody was even like, yeah, hash, go do it, do it, do it now. They were like, it's possible. It just depends on how you apply yourself. And that was the best advice I ever got. And if I were to give advice to anybody else trying to start a studio, become an engineer, just work, just start doing it. Like slowly, piece by piece, like, you know, you don't just get, stuff handed to you unless you're in a really fortunate situation and if if people find themselves in that situation do take advantage of it you know um i really wish that somebody could just have provided me with a bunch of stuff and just went like all right hash go crazy but no i had to i had to work to get my equipment my first few setup my first little setup it was around like three thousand dollars my parents wouldn't help me with it because as far as they were concerned at the time it was a distraction from school a distraction from what's real now after i've opened up an actual business and i'm getting money and it's i'm supporting myself they obviously see it very very differently um and even before i started the studio i felt like maybe i wasn't ready so i tried to take that extra step and enroll in berkeley college of music and i did i was in there for two years and I, I really did love it. I felt like their programs were really, really efficient and easy to learn. But the thing is, I had already done so much work. And what I like to call those 10 years is my crucible period. Like I did so much work in that crucible period. I actually unintentionally outpaced the curriculum of Berkeley College of Music. And I didn't know what to do, to be honest with you. I had no idea. I was like, I know this stuff. Okay, next year. Oh, okay, I know this stuff too. Okay, next year. I know that stuff too. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to take a year off, but I'm going to test out of classes. So I tested out of the Ableton Live courses and got like so many credits. I got like nine credits with that. And it was like one giant paper. And I was like, man, I already know everything about Ableton Live. They gave me the credits for it. It took me two weeks to write this paper. It's like mad long. I was like, why am I going here anymore? It looks like I'm ready. You know, I learned Pro, Pro Tools, I learned Ableton, um, I learned Signal Flow, and that was just the elementary stuff that I picked up when I was like in my early 20s. So, um, I, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they did help out with, like organization, like how to be a musician, how to be a professional, that I will give them. Berkeley College of Music has some of the best courses for actually like being a musician and not just making music, if you know what I mean. There's a certain like, you know, candor that a, that a musician should carry. Like there's a certain professionalism. And I feel like a lot of that classic professionalism has kind of worn out over time. Like, I feel like a lot of, um, you know, younger people who are starting to make music, they don't get the same respect as let's say a young composer, 
in, in, in Eastern Germany or whatever, wherever, wherever have you in Europe, who's just growing up and doing all this stuff. But if you really think about it, we're all composers in our own right. Like, aren't we, we choose the beat, we choose or the lyrics, you know, the words, choose how to put them together. And I just, me personally, like my mission with music is, and especially here in Morgantown, I really want to establish a professionalism. I want people to start seeing this as a career, like so badly, because so many people told me, like, like I said, there was a lot of people who supported me, but on the flip side of the coin, a lot of people are like, this is an impossible career. You know, you're getting into the whole like limelight thing. Don't be absorbed by what all these pop artists are doing and showing you glory. And I'm like, I'm not really after the money and the fame. I just really respect the art. Like a good song is like a good Picasso. You know, it's just, that's just facts. Like Miles Davis and Pablo Picasso hung out, you know, music is art. And it doesn't matter how much auto tune is on it. Right. Cause that's the whole like argument now it's still art, isn't it? Like, do you think people were complaining when pictures started being in color and they weren't black and white no more? Yeah, exactly. So why are people so frustrated with the modern sound where everything is perfect now? You can see it more clearly. The artist can get more confidence. The engineer has more confidence. It's more applicable. Somebody's not going to listen to it and be like, oh, that's off pitch. He sucks. Because that's what was happening. So many people were making music so quick. And the thing is, like, we've kind of exceeded a threshold as far as musicians have gone. Like, with it being so easy to make music, you can churn out more and more and more and more and more and more songs quickly and easily, but the quality control does suffer sometimes. So that's like a whole other challenge. And, you know, that's a lot of stuff that I'm really, really worried about as a, as an audio engineer and as a studio owner, quality control matters. You know, I mean, the label that Migos assigned to is literally called quality control, the best name for a music label. They literally are very, very hands-on with the quality. I'm sorry. They're really hands-on with the quality. And it's it shows, you know, all of their artists are up there on the charts. Like, they're very worried about the sound. They're worried about the sound palette. They are so worried and concerned about the engineering. Like, it's so important. And to a lot of artists just starting out, the engineering is not important. The sound is not important. So that's what I mean by quality is exceeding and the quality control is getting less because, you know, it's just kind of like, all right, pull up Audacity, put a beat on there, rap on it, put put on the no, auto normalize and you're done. There's nothing bad about that. Like I said, at the end of the day, you're making music and you're getting your art out there. And I can never hate on anybody for doing that, no matter how good or bad the engineering is. But wouldn't you like for people to see you in the best light, right? Like you don't go to an interview in cargo shorts and a t-shirt, right? So I like I like to tell artists that every song they make is like an interview, for a new fan, a new listener, you know, they're looking at your resume. That song is your resume. And um, here at Culture on High, that's what we want to push. So we offer like a lot of things. We offer vocal training classes, uh, woodwind training classes. We offer DAW training classes. We teach people how to use Pro Tools, Ableton, FL Studio, um, and more DAWs hopefully in the future. But our mission is really to get up and coming musicians to be familiar with this audio equipment and use it in a way that can really benefit them. And my goal as an engineer is when somebody comes to me, they already know it's going to be fire because most likely they already heard one of my mixes. That's why they're there. Um, but I have to uphold that. I want their song to be as good, if not better as the song that they heard me mix for somebody else. And 
that's my main drive, honestly, here in Morgantown, because the music scene is, it's not bad. It's just sometimes it's really, really heavy and people are getting into it. They're going to shows, they're buying albums and t-shirts, and sometimes it's a desert. And I kind of really want to change that formula. I don't want it to be, oh, this guy's popping. And then he, he moves out to LA and then nobody's popping, so to say. I want to keep it even. So this is more like a community center more than anything. You know, we rent out our rooms, we have practice rooms. And the main goal is, you know, come in here and work on your craft. You know, we're not going to charge you an arm or a leg. Like our closest metropolitan is uh, Pittsburgh, which is about an hour and a half away, give or take. Um, And they charge way more. Yes, they have way more equipment. Yes, their engineers are way more qualified. But you're paying so much more and you're driving up there. And I just knew I could get clients a sound just as good, if not better as what they would get if they drove an hour and an hour and a half away. So I got the omnidirectional tube mic. I got the universal audio. I got all the fancy plugins. I got the dope speakers, um, you know, just so I can help everyone more. And I got the building, you know, the LLC. That's what this whole thing is about. Cause I'm not going to be here forever. I want to make a place that when I leave, a vacuum isn't created. Creativity doesn't die when I leave. Because I feel like me offering these services to people is making them want to come out of their shells and feel more welcome as a musician in Morgantown. I'm trying to normalize being a musician here. Um, Because we're not like LA. There's just not enough people here. It's like a town of around 40,000, 50,000 people. Uh, When the students are here, I think it's about like 60 or 70,000. Um, Because we are a university town. We have West Virginia University here. And that plays a huge role because I got to meet so many amazing people. Had there not been a university here, I don't know. You know, we wouldn't be getting all these sounds from all over the place. You got people from Maryland. You got people from Texas, Idaho, California, just to name a few of the people who went to WVU that I know and have recorded. And they go back home and they take this sound with them. Hey, bro, where'd you do that? L.A.? Nah, man, I did this in Morgantown. What? Where is that? You know, that's what I want. That is what I'm dying to hear. And over the past two, three years, that's all my clients have been telling me, dude, this is amazing. So much better than the last time. So much better, so much better. But you can't always take everybody's words as as gospel. Like pushing yourself is really important, especially if people are telling you you're good, just know that you can be better. Then you got to keep on pushing yourself. I definitely want to continue our conversation about Morgantown and like how your community has supported you, but let's take a quick commercial break. Quick message. Thank you for listening to today's episode of dreams.memes. Please make sure to follow dreams.memes podcast on your preferred streaming channel or on Instagram at dreams.memes podcast. To support Dreams.Memes podcast, feel free to contact me at adaywithoutlove at gmail.com for advertising or sponsorship opportunities. Now, let's get back to the show. Continue our conversation about production in, in Morgantown. I definitely agree about the quality versus process because... While there's a variety of genres of music that demand different production standards, we all really need to achieve a certain level of quality for our targeted listeners to get our sound to sound as best as possible. How do you feel that like your projects and your work has helped with 
Morgantown's artists and putting them on a bigger place or a bigger platform for their own craft? I think it's helped in, in the most simplest way, honestly. It's helped because people were able to produce more records at a higher quality in less time. And that applied to more than, more than 15 people at the time. So when I first started this, I was in my mom's basement. And obviously, daily, my parents were like, dude, get a real job, please. And I was like, trust me, mom. Trust me, dad. One day, this will be considered an actual job. And, um, but I wasn't, only in that, I wasn't the only one in that boat. Kind of all of Morgantown was in that boat. Like if your kid was trying to make music or was trying to rap, it's like you'd get roasted in high school for it. Because like, oh, it sounds like trash. He recorded it off his mom's MacBook. Da-da-da-da-da. So it took that away. It took the whole bedroom from scratch aspect away. So people didn't underestimate it as much. I feel like that's what I did for the image by offering a higher quality service for a really good rate. You know, at that time it was like $20 a song when I first started out. Well, when I first started out, I was free for like a year. And then after that, it was like $20 a song. And now I'm at $60 an hour after like five years. So by doing it that way, I was able to slowly get people in be like, Hey man, your music can get better. It can get better. It can get better. I can make it even better, but I have to charge more now because I have nicer stuff. And so that helped with the artist's confidence first. They know that if they write a song in their living room, in their kitchen, at home, they can come into the studio, book some time, and it will sound good. There are, that confidence matters a lot because it gets rid of the whole, just having a whole bunch of tracks stashed away because you don't have a studio to go to thing, you know? So it's helped with that they have security. I feel like the artist base has security and I'm not the only one in here engineering. There's other people doing it, but the way I'm doing it is I'm not other people are, you know, it's just them in a room. Like they're the only ones. I have three engineers in here right now and um, four producers. So I have a whole team that's ready to take on anyone. So that's, that's even nicer. When I first started out, I, I was way in over my head because I didn't realize honestly how much confidence I would instill in the music industry and everyone wanted to come by. Everyone wanted to come by. And it was super overwhelming. So then I was like, look, I got to charge more. I got to block my times out. And I just slowly became more professional. But what that did was, you know, all I was trying to do was organize myself. But that literally, it made everyone else follow that schedule. So the whole, my whole client base, at least, which was fairly large, was getting to a more professional level. So they started to vibe off of what I was getting. They're like, oh yeah, Hash is doing this at a specific time. He's doing this with the mix. He takes time. He does this, yada, yada, yada. Cool. Let me plan out my stuff. I'm going to write from this month to this month or this week to this week. I'm going to record from this week to this week. I'm going to release this time to this time. People weren't doing that before. Like as far as my friends go, all the guys that I record with who were recording elsewhere, they were not doing that. They would make a song. The engineer would tell them it's mixed. It would sound whatever good to them, decent to them. And they would just throw it right up on SoundCloud right there. They were not worried about posting it on Spotify, Apple Music. They were not worried about split sheets. They were not worried about royalties. So that is also a lot of the game that I brought in. I was like, yo, DistroKid, get your DistroKid, get your United Masters. I'm not paid by any of these guys, but these are tools that'll help you. Get your ASCAP, get your BMI. And that has helped them with their professionalism. Now, if any of any of my guys blow up, any of, any of my, my homies, my clients, whatever, the people I make music with blow up. 
I've made sure that that professional infrastructure is in there. Their ASCAP is done. They've got something on Spotify. They've got all their track links. They've got a little EP, electronic press kit. I, you know, I put them on the game, like, here's how you present yourself professionally over the internet. This is the digital age. We don't hand out CDs anymore. It's all digital. So that's what I really hammered in on them. You know, branding is another thing. Cause I saw a lot of people, you know, that was another issue. I was like, well, the music isn't mixed. It's dropped like instantaneously. There's no marketing beforehand. There's no marketing after. And it gets like a thousand plays. And then, you know, you got a whole bunch of angry rappers on their Instagram. Y'all don't support me. Go run up my track, please. God, please. And well, once exactly, once we started building that, you know, rapport that like, all right, we're recording it here. We're releasing then they're like, okay, cool, cool. So I should make an Instagram post ahead of time that says this. And I'm like, even better, you should make that Instagram post and you should make the Twitter post and you should put the pre-save link in your bio and you should spam everybody, you know, with it. And you should pay somebody else to uh, put it out there. And you should pay for a Spotify playlist and Apple music. When you make the video, put it on an established YouTube page with millions of followers, man, I'm giving out free game. If y'all listen to this podcast, you will succeed. I'm not, I have no problem with giving out free game because I'm not doing this for the money. I'm making dough. Don't get me wrong. I'm always worried about that. But what I'm more worried about is, are you performing to your highest level? And will you be seen as a professional if a label ever hears any of your songs? That's what I care about. They need to, it needs to be perfect from front to end. It sounds like the vocals were recorded nice. Sounds like they were mixed nice. The kid marketed it. It has a lot of plays. It slaps. It's on so many playlists. Wow, we would love to sign this kid. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see random SoundCloud link of a song you made two hours ago that you send into Warner's Warner Records or whatever, and it's just like, hey, man, yeah, sign me. It's like, no, come on. You got 10 plays on it. Like, you know, the quality's not that good. What, what's, what's up, man? True, and, it's, true. and that's, you know, the record labels aren't going to care if your music is good or bad, right? Because it's just pass or not pass for them. It's hurting you. If you're not going out there seeking out a good engineer, seeking out a good producer and spending the dough on it, yes, it's a, I'm revealing the secret guys. Are you ready? You have to spend money on your music. (laughs) And that's true because the thing is like, just speaking as a musician, there are definitely releases where I say, you know, right now thinking about where I am now versus then that was not as well produced as it could have been. So I'd rather re-release. And that's what I think a lot of musicians don't realize you can take down and re- do something again. Oh, uh, absolutely. And make it so much better. And also, you can re-release music and, and remix music until it gets to where it's at. Because there's a lot of songs that you suddenly hear and suddenly blow up, but people don't realize there were actually probably like eight different versions of that song. Oh, yeah. The, the best example for modern history. Man, I really love researching music. I'm so glad you're talking to me like about this, like this, and, and I can just go wild about it. The best song example is Mi Gente. That song went through eight transformations. Eight. It, the, the, the version you hear on the radio is a remix of a remix of a remix of a remix. I, I kid you not. You can look this up. That sample was flipped multiple times and it was the same similar type of cadence and it kept doing good. It did good in its respective countries because I think two two different artists from different countries made it originally before it became the version that we know. And before that, it was some kind of instrumental version. Before that, it was the original sample. So you know, you got all these people in different parts of the world flipping it and they're doing really good numbers, but the numbers weren't solid breakthrough worldwide hits. When 
he got a hold of the track and he remade it and he redid it. Oh my goodness, it blew up and it was so fire. And the and the engineer, man, I was so curious about that song because I'm like, man, this sounds so on point. It's like they really spent their time on it. They did. They spent years on it, like years and years and years and years. That song went through a transformation. There's a lot of songs out there that are hits right now that are that went through a transformation. You listen to any old school hip hop track pre 2000s, Slick Rick is written everywhere. It's Snoop Dogg's discography and Dr. Dre's discography are reconfigured Slick Rick and Parliament Funkadelic songs. And that's what's so amazing about this genre cuz that's not even sampling at that point. That's like honoring somebody who whose music you love so much, you know? Um also guys don't be afraid of sampling like really if if a, if a record label like goes after you for having a sample you're just getting good clout i just wanted to throw that out there because yeah, a lot of people yeah. are all worried like oh what happens if i sample the first eight seconds of a gunna song well if it blows up you're gonna get a lot of attention but you'll know if it doesn't blow up because they won't sue you <laughs> and not to mention just thinking about like it's 2020 the biggest song of the year was WAP, and what a lot of people don't realize is that's nothing but a Baltimore club music sample. Oh yeah. You know? Bro, that City Girls song, they literally took Freak a Leak. Yeah, dude. I heard that and I was like, yo, that has <laughs> been so dumb. The Sada Baby song. Those sits of Big Brothers found out a band. Yep. And that same sample. See that that one's really Perf that song was a banger in the 80s. Fergie flipped it in the early 2000s. Then Sada Baby flipped it again. That song saw fame three separate times exactly. in a big, big way. And you know, the crazy part is, I feel that rock bands used to do that on an arrangement level. If you listen mm -hmm. to a lot of 80s and 90s rock, and a lot of rock doesn't do that at all. And as a musician that does both, I'm trying to figure out, yo, how could I take some riffs and make them my own riffs but still get that level of familiarity. Cause I think that's the art of sampling from like a digital production view. Like how can you take a sample, make it sound familiar. And then only a trained ear would be like, that's Coltrane. That's Wes Montgomery. Yeah. You know, and so forth and so forth. But uh, you know, we're definitely running on time, but I'd like to ask who are some people that you've been working with that you are worthy of shouting out or like, you think are doing some really big things? Uh, first and foremost, my first supporter, one of my greatest friends, Don Data Sabri. He is awesome. Dope rapper. Check him out everywhere. Um, Spikey, the homie for life. I mean, these guys are awesome musicians and great people to be around. Uh, my friend Catching Z's, definitely a part of the squad. Um, my friend Darius, and I can't forget Wasif. I actually have a whole duo album coming out with my friend Wasif over in the UK called The Engines. That's going to drop hopefully sometime soon. Obviously, COVID has release schedules, all weird. But um, that album's done. We we finished it in like six weeks on quarantine. He was on quarantine in the UK. I was on quarantine in Morgantown. I was just cooking up beats, sending them. And he's like, yo, rap on this one, rap on that one. And I was like, cool. So he kind of like A&R'd it. I produced most of it. And I had some of my first few verses on there, which I'm super proud of. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I, honestly, I love everybody who supports Culture on High. Everybody who's been supporting me since day one. Um, Prospect 304, uh, Raheem, uh, The Dream, man. <laughs> He's my man. All these guys are my man, bro. Uh, shout out to Kiko. He, he passed away this year, but or last year, but we made a lot of music together. He's a huge inspiration. I still carry him with me today. Um, my friend Peyton taught me the ins and outs of DJing and yeah, I mean, I've got 
projects coming out with Spikey. I've got projects coming out with Don Dada. Follow me on Instagram at hash made it and you will be upgraded updated on everything. So yeah, absolutely. But Beautiful. those are my homies. Thank you for letting me shout them out. Anytime, those, are, anytime. those are my guys since the beginning. <laughs> you got to show respect where it's due. Absolutely. I wouldn't be, honestly, man, I wouldn't be a great producer if I didn't have rappers in there going like, hey, bro, that really sucks. <laughs> Make it cooler. <laughs> so that's what they helped me do. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for them. I mean, uh, you know, sword sharpen, sharpen swords. You got to keep yourself on a sharp sword and you yourself have to be a sharp one, you know? So... Yeah. <laughs> uh, great wisdom, great chat. This has been a good episode of Dreams Not Memes. Yeah, yeah, man. It was, it was fun. Thank you for, so much for, for having me. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, this is Brian from A Day Without Love. Thank you for listening to Dreams Not Memes. I just want you to remember, your dreams matter. If you'd like to support this podcast, email at daywithoutlove at gmail.com for donation information, or follow me for weekly episodes. Thank you for listening and joining my journey. Have a good day.